There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10th and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, a retired NYPD sergeant with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, you notice it's not Phil Grimaldi. It's a bigger guy. looks like the guy in the Dinty Moore stew, uh, beef <laughs> stew can. We got uh, retired NYPD police officer, but also defense attorney, Joe Murray. How are you doing tonight, Joe? Good to see you. I love that new intro. That's fantastic. Yeah, my son, Jake, uh, who's a, a film editor, he did it for us. He did a fantastic job. Yes. I may have to enlist his services again to do maybe an outro, but uh, yeah, he did a fantastic job. So, Joe, you know, you've been uh, on the show probably over the past year and a half, two years, quite a few times. Sure. And the Gabby Petito Brian Laundry case is always filled with, you know, when they say expect the unexpected, that's what you always have to do with this case. You have to expect the unexpected. Yeah. And sure enough, just a couple of days ago, the um, Brian Laundry had written sort of a, a confession uh, in regards to both his suicide and the murder of Gabby Petito. Of course, unexpected. And this, how does this affect this? We're going to discuss all of that. But it, it was written in like eight pages of like a notepad. And it was a little bit, you know, it got wet. It was a little bit uh, difficult to read. But some of the news stations put it uh, in a document that made it a lot easier to read. And I'm going to I'm going to read some of it, uh, if not all of it. I'll show you the, uh, up on the screen. That's what it looked like uh, when they found it. And um, so you got to realize that the FBI and uh, the Petito family, excuse me, the uh, laundry family knew about the contents of this for, for a long time. And we're just really finding out. The contents of it. I'm going to start reading a little bit of it. Gabby, I wish uh, I was right at your side. I wish I could be talking to you right now. I'd be going through every memory we made, getting even more excited for the future. But we lost our future. I can't live without you. I've lost every day we could have spent together every holiday. I'll never get to play with. It's illegible that who we wanted to play with again. Never go hiking with TJ. I loved you more than anything. I can't bear to look at our photos to recall great times because it is why I cannot go on. When I close my eyes, I will think of laughing on the roof of the van, falling asleep to the sight of also ineligible at the Crystal Geyser. I will always love you. If you were reading Gab's journal, looking at photos from our life together, flipping through old cards, you wouldn't want to live a day without her. Knowing that every day you'll wake up without her, you wouldn't want to wake up. I'm sorry to everyone this will affect. Gabby was the love of my life, but I know adored by many. I'm so very sorry to her family because I love them. I consider her younger siblings my best of friends. I'm sorry to my family. This is a shock to them as well as terrible grief. They loved as much, if not more than me. A new daughter to my mother, an aunt to my nephews. Please do not make this harder for them. This occurred as an unexpected tragedy. Rushing back to our car, trying to cross the streams of, it, this is also illegible, illegible, before it got too dark to see, too cold. I hear a splash and a scream. I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment. Shouted her name. I found her breathing, gasping, illegible. She was freezing cold, illegible. The blazing hot national parks in Utah. The temperature had dropped to freezing and she was soaking wet. I carried her as far as I could from the stream toward the car, stumbling, exhausted in shock when my illegible, and I knew couldn't safely carry her. I started the fire and spooned her as close to the heat. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long. I couldn't at the time realize that I should have started the fire first, but I wanted her out of the cold back into the car. From where I started the fire, I had no idea how far the car might be, only knew it was across the creek. When I pulled Gabby out of the water, she couldn't tell me what hurt. She had a small bump on her forehead that eventually got larger. Her feet hurt. 
Her wrist hurt, but she was freezing, shaking violently. While carrying her, she continually made sounds of pain. Laying next to her, she said little, lapsing between violent shakes, gasping in pain, begging for an end to her pain. She would fall asleep, and I would shake her awake, fearing she wouldn't close her eyes if she had a concussion. She would wake in pain, start a whole painful cycle again, illegible, furious that I was the one waking her. She wouldn't let me try to cross the creek, thought like me that the fire would go out in her sleep and she'd freeze. I don't know the extent of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful, that it is what she wanted, but I see now all the, mis the mistakes I made. I panicked. I was in shock. But from the moment I decided to took her away, away her pain, I knew I couldn't go on without her. Let me just put a picture of Gabby up on here. I rushed home to spend any time I had left with my family. I wanted to drive north and let James or TJ kill me, but I wouldn't want them to spend in jail over my mistake, even though I'm sure they would have liked to. I'm ending my life not because of a fear of punishment, but rather because I can't stand to live another day without her. I've lost our whole future together, every moment we could have shared. I'm sorry for everyone's loss. Please do not make life harder for my family. They lost a son and a daughter. The most wonderful girl in the world. Gabby, I'm sorry. I've killed myself by this creek in the hopes that animals may tear me apart, that it may make some of our family happy. Please pick up all of my things. Gabby hated people who litter. What do you think of that, Joe? Uh, that broke my heart just just uh, reading that. Uh, you know, it's painful, Bill. Uh, I hear a lot of people criticizing it, calling it, you know, BS and made up and it's all lies. Think about this. This is a young kid in his 20s. I forget how old he was, 20, 26. Uh, in his 20s. 23, 24, yeah. And now he's facing... I don't know exactly what the context is, what was written after that, what was written before that. Did he have the gun in his hand while he was writing this? You know, like, I don't know really the context when he wrote it, but it sounds like he had already made up his mind. He's about to commit suicide. He's about to face God and be judged. For, for you to say, you know, not you, but for anyone to say that he was lying and he made this all up, that's a powerful statement just reading from this note that he wrote. I don't, I would need more to, to try to dispute some of that because this young kid is about to take his life and he writes this statement clearing his conscience expressing his love for Gabby and how he couldn't live without her. Joe, you got a lot of people in the, in the chat that they, they already got the rope ready for you. <laughs> but, but honestly, he's going to kill himself. And I believe, you know, they're God fearing people that, you know, he, he may have been, I, I'm not positive, but I'm sure he was raised, you know, uh, believing in God He's about to meet God, and he's writing out the events that happened, you know, and, and he's expressing his love. He's apologizing to the families. I, I, I find it hard to believe that people are so sure, they're so sure that this is all lies. Why would Joe, he you know, my, I, I just have to express my feelings about that. As everyone knows here, I worked in homicide for my last 10 years on the job. And I can read through um, Brian Laundrie's uh, his statement here, and I think he's full of shit. I first see no character in this man. I think he's a coward. I think he's. Uh, I think they had a domestic violence problem, and I think he terrorized her. So I don't take anything he says. I don't care if he's going to see his maker. I think he's going to see his maker, and he's more concerned with himself than spending the rest of his life in prison. As I said, I see no character in Brian Laundry and the whole bullshit about him trying to save her. If he wanted to save her life, he could have. I think what he's really doing in this statement is covering some of the injuries she has because we were told by the medical examiner that she was uh, the cause of death 
was manual strangulation with throttling. Throttling. That's when you have your hand around and you're like that. Mm-hmm. But he didn't very gently throttle her. A lot of murderers try to say, oh, I very gently hit him over the head with a ceramic statue. Not that hard. Not enough to kill him, you know. So they always try to give themselves an out. And I think that's what he's trying to do. But you know what? He did it. He did the dirty deed. He killed this girl. And now he's he's either driving back to Florida or he wrote this right before he killed himself. It's unclear when he wrote this. Joe, I appreciate your opinion. I just don't buy it. It, it it is important to know when he wrote it if there is some kind of context that can fill in the gap because you might be right that if he wrote this on his drive back to Florida you know that maybe that you know you can say that he wasn't content he wasn't actually maybe he was thinking of running away and and faking his death but if he's sitting there in the park with the gun in his hand, remembering everything that happened, I don't see him as wanting to lie about that. He's a Joe, read, read, read what's on the screen. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful that it was what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. Bill, you said it yourself. He's 23 years old. And I have heard time and time again, all the experts on YouTube talking about this guy is no survivalist. This guy is, he's not an expert. He's just a glorified camper. Okay. But now all of a sudden he's not a glorified camper and he knew exactly what he was doing and knew exactly where he was. I mean, it, it's gotta be one or the other. But you Joe, why, just, why did he kill her? Why? I, I, you know, he's 23. He panicked, you know, she's in pain. Maybe he thought she was dying a slow death. He didn't know where to go. He, he said he, he didn't know how far away the van was. He tried carrying her. He couldn't carry her anymore. She's Yo, she pain. weighed about she weighed about a buck twenty. How much did he weigh? I don't know. A buck fifty. Yeah, one fifty. <laughs> I you know, it never amazes me when you when you hear about young people and some of the stuff they do. I represent them. They do the craziest things. Their frontal lobe is not fully developed, and, you know, it, it's very impulsive. This is an impulse, and he admits he made mistakes, and he was wrong, and now he's very well, Joe, regretful. Did, did, he, did the murder of Gabby Petito stem from the bigger problem of domestic violence that they had in their relationship? I have never believed that he killed her in regards to domestic violence, ever. I have never felt that. It just so if didn't their relationship fit. was if their relationship was hunky dory and wonderful and beautiful, like he was talking about in that confession, there would be no reason to kill her. No, no, no. You I, I think you're mixing the two. I don't believe that it was a domestic violence situation. And I never thought it was because think about it. He lived with her at his parents' house. And for a time period, his sister and her husband lived there. You can't live in that close confinement with someone for people not to see signs of domestic abuse, domestic violence. It's impossible. You just can't. So I never believed that this was sure they, I mean, being tied up in that van together throughout this trip, you're going to have your little outbursts. And I get that. But Bill, go back to the timeline here. I have it up here. August 17th to the 23rd, Laundry flies from Utah to Florida and back. Remember, he flew home. If he was so hateful and, and upset with her, you know, during that time period, why go back? Why did he go back? You know why he went back? He loved her. The parents loved her. He went back there to be with her. Yes, then it says on the 27th, Laundry and Petito are seen in a Wyoming restaurant. I think there was the Merry Piglet. And it just, you know, it says there was some kind of commotion. Some Something happened. But that's normal in relationships. Let, look, Joe, let's, in the chat, Lynn Harvey, in his confession, why didn't he reveal exactly where he left her body so that animals wouldn't eat the woman that he loved. 
But, you know, everything that you're saying and even these people in there is if like he's trying to conceal his crime. He's dead. He killed himself. What is he hiding? He's about to see God and be judged for what he did. He's not trying he may, to. But Joe, himself. he may be trying to protect his parents. From what? How from does that the, his parents did not kill Gabby. No, That's I know, but just from the mistake. fact that I, I think there's no aid in a bet in killing Gabby. This was not a conspired plan that he flew home and the parents told him how to kill her. That's ridiculous. That's not what happened. He killed her. He admitted it. He killed her and he's dead. This witch hunt to get these parents who loved her like a daughter is outrageous i cannot believe it Let, let's let's hold that thought i don't want to segue right into that yet i know <laughs> i know you're dying to go to that now uh, i'm gonna i want to play a little bit of brian enton from uh news nation we'll share this on the screen uh because this has gotten a lot of coverage here we go back for months it has been assumed that brian laundry took his secrets to the grave but we now know that is not true pages of laundry's notebook were finally released to the public today by the laundry family attorney stephen bertolino the fbi had already said that laundry confessed in those pages to killing gabby and he does but he also left a detailed almost minute by minute description of gabby's final moments and what he claims he was thinking the entire time including this passage, which reads, I ended her life, I thought it was merciful. That is what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked, I was in shock, but from the moment I decided, took away her pain, I knew I couldn't go on without her. But brace yourselves, because the notebook was not the only bombshell dropped today. A little while ago, I spoke with the lawyer for the Petito family, he says there are several other pieces of evidence in the possession of the Laundry's attorney, Stephen Bertolino, including a letter from Roberta Laundry to her son, Brian. Here is some of what he told me. Someone should ask him to release the letter that Roberta Laundry wrote to uh, Brian Laundry uh, that on the envelope that on the envelope says burn after you read this. So there was a letter from Roberta to Brian within the notebook. No, it was not within the notebook. It was a separate letter. That was found out there with the notebook, though. My understanding is that the, that the letter at one point had been in the van, uh, but then it was taken from the laundry home during the uh, time when the search warrant was executed. So a letter from Roberta to Brian that said, burn this letter after yes. you read it. And yes. were you able to read the letter? Yes, I was. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I... I had an idea what was in the letter before I read it. I knew about the letter. Uh, I don't believe Mr. Bertolino knew about the letter and the surprise on his face was very interesting as he read that letter. That was all today. I can say. He has the letter. He has the original of the letter. Uh, and I've asked him to maintain that for purposes of the litigation. Uh, I don't have a copy of it. I expect I'll be getting a copy of it. He wouldn't allow me to get a copy of it today. Uh, but it, within that letter is an, an offer uh, from uh, Roberta Laundry to assist her son. I don't want to say more because I don't have the letter, but it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting, pretty odd letter. So a letter from Roberta to Brian to assist her son, assist him to do what? Let me back up and say there's no date on the letter. Um, but it would appear that the letter was written between the time that Gabby was murdered and Brian committed suicide. Uh, there's scenarios presented by Roberta in that letter. For example, if you go to jail, I'll bake a cake and I'll put a knife in it or a saw in it. Um, there was also something referenced in that letter about Gabby, and I'd rather not go any further that uh, at this point, the letter will speak for itself. And I don't want to say what I don't want to paraphrase incorrectly what the letter said. I understand. I just want to make sure I can report it correctly. So was she sort of offering to help him kill himself? 
Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. Okay. No, it was an, as I said, it was an offer that had to do with Gabby. After she was already dead. That's my belief. And you can't say anything more about what that offer was? I'm not comfortable without having it in front of me because I'll be paraphrasing and I don't want to paraphrase something that serious. Wow. Very, very interesting there. Patrick Riley also told me that the notebook is not the only confession Brian left. He told me today there was a second confession on a, quote, digital device and possibly a third confession in written form. Riley says he has not seen those confessions yet, but the FBI told him they are somewhat different from the confession in the notebook that we've seen. It is a lot to take in. Thank you for watching. A lot there, Joe, huh? Yeah, that's exactly my point. We need more context. Now we hear that there are several either letters or a voice, you know, a voice recording of him. So we need to know the context of was this something he was doing, perhaps driving back and and, and spinning his wheels coming up with this story? Maybe he wasn't going to kill himself. He was just going to try to fake his death. Who knows? Or was he sitting in the park with the gun in his hand and writing this thing out? Now, you know, just from the police department, there's something called a dying declaration. That's a I hearsay. Knew you, I, knew you were di- I knew you were dying to get to this. <laughs> well, that's a hearsay exception. And it's an exception where that would be admissible because they believe when someone is dying and, and they're, they're faced with their own mortality and they're dying that they're less likely to be untruthful. And that's why it's an exception to ordinary hearsay and it's allowed in. But we don't know if this is a dying declaration. It's a suicide note, apparently. But because of these other documents and a recording, we don't know when it was done. Did he have the gun in his hand? Was, it, was he that close to dying uh, and ending his life? Or was this something he was spinning his wheels with? So in all fairness, we don't really know. But I'm taking it at face value based on what I what I hear from him in this uh, recitation of facts. And he did commit suicide. I mean, there's no question. He, the DNA matched. It did the, the, uh, the, the dental uh, uh, comparison. He, it's 100% him. He committed suicide. So that to me just, you know, it, it jumps out at me that we really should take this at face value until we learn something different. You know, I, Phil- I also want to point out, Bill, I give this attorney a lot of credit for the ethics that he showed. He brought this other letter up written by his mother, you know, Byrne, upon reading it. He brought it up at the hearing, and again, he similarly uh, – you know, refused to guess as to what was in the letter and just pointed out a couple of those points, exactly what he did here. Here he's faced with the case being dismissed completely and thrown out of court. And he had the ethics to say, look, I know the letter is there. I read it, but I don't remember exactly. So I'm not going to say. And I I give him credit for that. He's a very ethical way he uh, proceeded with that. My co-host uh, doesn't pull any punches. Brian was a dirty, rotten scumbag in plain <laughs> English. I hate to use that kind of terminology, but he killed a beautiful young girl in a fit of rage. That's what I really believe happened. So we have a lot of emotion in the chat, obviously. This case drove a lot of people. You know, I saw the emotions. Like I said, this guy, John Walsh, he went off the deep end. Uh, but you know, a lot of people really were, you know, moved by this thing the whole way as it went on, you know, Joe, was this just, was like internationally known this yeah, case, not just yeah. nationally, it was internationally. I want to play a little bit of this incident that the city is preparing to investigate. I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry. The moment on the side of a street in Moab has garnered national. The old Moab car stop there. Domestic violence call on a couple driving, and you could see even uh, in that context. The office, I don't know, there's not a lot, the the volume's not good, uh, so I'm gonna gonna take it off. We're not hearing it, but 
the car stopped at when they were stopped in, in Moab by the Moab police, which of course there was a great deal of criticism of those guys. And we had said numerous times that we thought that they did a pretty good job, but there was lots of people that criticized those guys, you know, uh, that they didn't, uh, they should have arrested both of them. I mean, that was a stretch, I think, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and, um, we weighed in on it and we weighed in on it on how we would have handled it in New York city. Yeah. And we are, our, our verdict was that we thought they did a pretty damn good job. They did a great job. Great job. Yeah. But uh, you talk to a lot of domestic violence experts, more, you know, mostly women. And they would say, you could see, you could read into, I mean, you can't read into everything in, in an hour and, and know everything that's going on. You know, that's not I the just, law. And I, I pointed out to a couple of the try to be respectful. I pointed out to him, that's not the law. It, the law is an objective test, right? It's not uh, through the eyes of an expert, you know, do you think a crime occurred? No, it's an objective test, a reasonable, reasonable person test. Is it apparent? based on the facts and circumstances in the totality that a crime was committed, probable cause, you know, that a crime was committed, not based on an expert's view of the case. And they, they constantly throw that out there. I'm an expert. I'm an expert. Yes, but that's not the law. That's not but the Joe, law. And also having hours and hours and hours to look at something. Of course. And to examine it and to re-examine it, to play it over, play it back, play it forward, yep. Yep. you know, it's like that. That's where the term Monday morning quarterback comes from is that you've there had days and hours to look at the films and say, come to the conclusion that was a mistake, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, let, let me play a little bit of this. I hope the volume is better up on this one. Let's see. Uh, wait one second. Here I am. I'm just, uh, I'm the engineer. I'm the host. I'm I know. You do it all. You do it I'm all. Doing it all. <laughs> Let me put this up on the screen. There we go. Pledges he used credit cards in her name after she died. The FBI is still investigating the circumstances leading up to Petito's death, which they're calling a homicide. Laundry is still considered, however, just a person of interest. But Florida, a law firm there, is offering now a $20,000 reward for anyone who can help find Brian Laundrie. In other developments tonight, Moab police officers and dispatchers will be scrutinized as a new investigation is launched into how they responded to an incident between Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie. Fox 13's Haley Higgins spoke with experts about the disturbing interaction several weeks before Petito disappeared. <laughs> Can I get you to step out of the vehicle for me, man? Praise and criticism towards Moab Police's interactions with Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie in the middle of their National Park road trip. So we need to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm. Joe, this is the famous, famous stop that everyone super analyzed it and blamed these cops, even though they spent, I think, an hour and 10 minutes on this job. They were yeah. so highly criticized and all these domestic violence experts, FBI agents, CIA, you know, Interpol, you know, everyone was analyzing this thing. Yeah. And it, it, it's not reasonable to analyze it to that level. Correct. And especially the time they spent on it. You're a boss. Uh, you know, like, could, could we ever spend that much time on a domestic case? No, no, no. Nope. Make a decision. And you know that the officer, I forget his name at the end, he goes, look, I see it all, all three ways. I, I, you can make, that's how close a call it was. And he said that I could, I'll back you, whatever you decide to do, because I see it all three ways. You know? Except, so. you know, the way law enforcement is, Joe, is that someone wants a piece of their hide. Of course. Because, you know what I mean? The Monday morning quarterback, now that yeah. we know the result of the inevitable uh, end of her life, which obviously was not attributable here and may not have done anything, even if she was arrested or he was arrested, it may not have stopped the inevitable death of Gabby, but they want to blame someone. Bystander called 911 to report a possible domestic dispute. Uh, we drove by and the gentleman was slapping the girl. He was slapping her? Yes, and then we stopped. They ran up and down the sidewalk. He proceeded to hit her hopped in the car and they drove off while officers made plans to separate the couple overnight utah law requires the officers to do more 
in cases involving domestic violence. And You know, but Joe, that was never reported early on that someone called in. That wasn't reported, I don't think, till days la later that he was slapping her. Because yeah. had, had, had any of us known that, we would have said, yeah, ar arrest him. No, we wouldn't because slapping is a violation that has to occur in your presence. That's true. You're right. You You're right. Harassment's a uh, not a, not a, not a crime. It's a violation. People don't understand that. But within the context of domestic violence, I think he probably could make the arrest and call it an assault based on you know even though there was a very small injury of like maybe a cut, you know, and that's you know we we can. We can cross hairs, as they call it. You know, you, you, well, a cut technically is not a physical injury. You could charge attempted assault, even though there was no physical injury. Yeah. He intended to cause an injury. But that's the analysis they were trying to do. He went back to, to Gabby and said, think about the question I'm going to ask you. What was your intent when you hit him? You know, like these guys... We're looking. If she said, yes, I meant to hurt him, she was getting collared. Do you doubt that? I don't. No, I don't doubt that he at all. Said that. He, he put it right to her. Now, if the analysis, after doing their primary aggressor analysis, pointed towards Brian, I believe they would have done the same thing with Brian. First, they would have asked her, do you believe he intended to cause an injury on you? You know, like, and if she said no, then he would have went to Brian. And then he always has the right himself as a police officer and his training and experience does the evidence and, and totality of the circumstances present to you that he intended to do so. We don't just take the word of, of in a domestic, the victim and the uh, defense, you know, the suspect. We use our own observation about the totality of the circumstances. So he he had, and he said that. He goes, I, I can see this either way, and I'll back you because it's that close. Yeah, no, but absolutely. But I think they, they did a wonderful job. They did it by the book. British Chippy, I love that name. <laughs> Thank you for the $10 super chat, 10 pounds, whatever it is. I'm not sure. Joe, this is from chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. British Chippy. That's a. I love that. Uh, I love that uh, screen that's name. So that's, that's a great one. Yeah. Let me let me play this. Uh, continue with this here. An arrest or citation is mandatory. There are no exceptions to that, and the officers didn't do either one. So technically, they weren't in full compliance with the law, but practically, their conduct seems to have been pretty smart. Greg Scorda says it appears the officers approached the call as if the couple suffered a mental health crisis instead. She just gets worked up sometimes, and I try and really distance myself from her, so like I, I lock the car. Laundry's alleged physical violence was not brought up by either officer, according to the body cam video. Former Deputy Chief Chris Bertram argues critical information may not have been passed along from dispatch. The fact that an independent witness is saying that he is physically assaulting her is very important information when we're assessing what's going on in the situation. This may be a mutual combat where they're both assaulting each other, and, and that comes into play as to how you're going to deal with that. The investigation into Moab police will be done by an unnamed agency. In Salt Lake City, Haley Higgins, Fox 13 News, Utah. You know, amazing, Joe, the, the scrutiny that that job got. And it got oh. so much scrutiny because that this story was like an international story. Uh, you know, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And if you want to join the Police Off the Cuff YouTube family, you can see the folks with the green font, we have five different levels to that. You can support us with that. So, Joe, I know that you're dying to get to this, and you're dying to get to – here we have – it's out. Uh, Brian Laundry admitted, confessed in, this, uh, in his notebooks to causing the death of Gabby Petito. He also confessed to taking his own life or intending to take his own life. Now – the case now is looking to go civilly. So in essence, they're, um, the Petito family is going after the laundries. And, and I guess it's, it's really when you, you, you analyze it's for omission, which is a failure to act. 
And I don't know if the law covers that. So that's why I bring on a smart guy like you to talk to us about does omission is is omission you know uh, something to file a civil case with in this in this incident? Not in this context. And and it was again crediting the plaintiff's attorney. I I, I give him a lot of credit. He was very ethical in his argument. Uh, he was asked you know quite clearly from the judge. We understand you know, that we would have wanted them to report what they knew. And he says, well, they could have even made an anonymous call. But then the judge pressed him and said, where is the legal duty? In this court, we have to deal with legal duty. Did they have a legal duty to speak? And quite clearly, there was no legal duty, and he didn't allege there was a legal duty. What he did, by his own admission, though, and this is why I like this guy, by his own admission, he says, it's going to appear that I'm deflecting and not answering your question, but I'm alleging that it was a course of conduct. It wasn't that they failed to report in and of itself in a vacuum. It was the course of contact that they underwent, even though he alleges that on, uh, I think it was August 28th, they knew that he brutally killed her. They had this information. And he says what they did from that point forward is what rises to the level of extreme emotional distress, outrageous conduct far beyond what's acceptable in a civilized society. That's what he's alleging. So by the, his ethics of saying, no, there is no affirmative duty to speak, my case is not about that. My case is about their course of conduct. Now, I think his course of conduct is a little frivolous. He's alleging that even though the Laundries knew this, that he murdered her, when he got home on September 1st, they carried on their lives as if nothing happened and didn't say a word to anyone. And then he says they went on vacation together. And I don't see how doing something as benign as going to spend time together during a crisis would lead to extreme emotional distress, you know, a tort, which is essentially an intentional or recklessly done. I don't think going to spend time with him when he's despondent, you know, in a place that he loves in an environment that he feels comfortable, I don't think that's an that's evidence of or should be considered as part of the, the extreme emotional distress. But he's laying this out as their course of conduct, all of this stuff. The one thing that the court kind of telegraphed as something that might rise to that level is not the failure to act. It was Bernalini's Bernalini. Bertolino. 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 Oh, Bertolino. Bertolino's statement to the press saying, and he, he pointed out that he said this on behalf of the Laundry family, that we, we hope that the search is successful and that you're reunited with your daughter, something to that effect. Right. And the judge... He pointed out as he was, you know, asking questions of the lawyers, he says, we know, wasn't Johnny Depp held responsible for the comments made by his lawyer? Isn't he an agent of the party? You know, isn't Bertolini, Bertolino an agent of the laundries and speaking for them as if they said it themselves? So, you know, he used that Johnny Depp case saying that, yes, a statement by the attorney could be attributable and, and the liability could be attributed to the, the, the laundries. You know, folks, well, what I think that almost everyone in the chat um, wants, of course, to see the Bertolino, excuse me, the laundry family hung for this. However, if I may speak in layman's terms, you have no requirement to um, basically to... Uh, Speak to, to speak or to put yourself out there or to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look for the word <laughs> um, affirmatively report this. You, yeah, you, you don't have, have no to, you don't have to give yourself up basically and uh, admit to anything. And that's what I think bothers all of us because yeah. we all believe that the uh, laundries knew 
that Gabby was dead for weeks before or maybe months before it was ever reported. And that bothers all of us. And that is clear a clear-cut omission. But nothing in the law here says that an omission is criminal. It doesn't. And I know you guys all want to take a picture of Joe with his flag in the background and put it on a dartboard and throw darts at him. But he's speaking the truth. He's speaking uh, the law. And I want to put a little bit on, this was like weeks and weeks ago with Stephen Bertolino, who was the laundry's attorney, who did a lot of battle with, uh, with Ashley Banfield. And I think she did a, she did a pretty damn good job. I want to play a little bit of this. So you didn't speak with Brian or Roberta or Chris between September 1st when he arrived back in Florida and September 11th, 10 days later? I can tell you I didn't say that. What I can tell you is any conversations I had with Brian, Chris, and uh, Roberta uh, would be privileged and confidential. Um, what you asked me was when did I become involved for, for this particular case, and it was on September 11th. So then presumably before September 11th, if you had conversations with them, say September 1st to September 11th, those 10 days, those would not be privileged because you hadn't been retained as counsel? Well, that's not true either because I've been the laundry family attorney for you know, well over 20 years. So any conversation. You know, Joe, how long does lawyer client privilege? Can you represent someone 30 years ago and then claim that because you represented them 30 years ago, you still represent them? Is that is that legit? Lawyer-client privilege surpasses the death of the parties and the lawyer. I mean, it, it's something that's sacred. It, it goes on forever. But uh, that's talking about things that were said during that relationship. It can't be revealed just because it's 30 years later. What I think you're getting at is... No, no, what I'm, so what I'm saying is... Does you it represent mean, someone 30 years ago, does it mean you still represent... Right, that's, no. what, I, that's what I meant. That's no, what I meant. it doesn't. There has right, to be... So, an affirmative conversation where someone is seeking legal advice. It has to meet all the criteria. It has to be done in secret, meaning it's just you and the client. The conversation has to be uh, regarding the law and, and a legal question. Perhaps they're giving you facts. That would be privilege. I do it all the time. Well, People Joe, it's like, it's, like when, it's like when you represented me and you said, hey, send me a dollar. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. I get calls all the time from people, you know, who are charged with crimes and have attorneys, but they're not happy and they're, they're considering switching over. Just that conversation, as long as it's private, it's between us, you meet all the other criteria, it's privilege. It doesn't matter that they paid me, they didn't pay me. You know, they sign a contract. It doesn't matter. You're allowed to have. But as far as him saying he still represents them based on something that happened 30 years ago, that's really not true. I don't know. I don't know their relationship, but I think this the significance of this recording, you know, where she's alleging, well, they had a conversation August 1st. She didn't he didn't have a conversation with them for 11 days. That goes to this statement. I didn't finish. I just want to add something. With that motion to dismiss, the statement that Bertolino made, his uh, the the uh, the laundry attorney said, "Yes, you can attribute the statement of a lawyer to the client, but in this case, it wasn't a, that was a defamation, you know, example, the Johnny Depp. But in this case, it's not defamation, and we don't know what information he had when he made that statement." And just this recording here showing that he didn't have he was he was never in Florida, to my knowledge, that it was just through through phone. So I think his knowledge of the case was limited. You know, he didn't have the full facts. So that's an interesting point, because that could lead to this ultimate dismissal. I, I believe if they can't find a way to hook that statement in that Bertolino made, this case gets dismissed 100 percent. And I don't even think. The statement he made was so benign, it's not something that would rise to the level of uh, extreme emotional distress anyway. Right. You know? so, I mean, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, I have so, respect to legal matters, be privileged and confidential. 
So when Brian came home to Northport on the 1st, as is evidenced by a card reader, a license plate reader, seeing the white van coming home, how did you have your first engagement with the family? Was it was it a family meeting? Was it a, a, a conference call? Like, how did you first connect with them after he had, uh, had, had returned? Again, any conversation I've had with uh, Chris, Roberta, and Brian, you know, was by telephone. But, uh, you know, the dates and what we discussed uh, are all attorney-client privileged and confidential. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that uh, I, I can't speak about those things. Counselor, I fully understand uh, that you cannot reveal those uh, privileged engagements, uh, the content within. I'm just sort of going around the, the contours of it, if you'd allow me to. And that is that I'm just curious about, because you're, as I understand it, I'm, I'm talking to you in Long Island, correct? That's correct. And, and the laundries have always been in Northport. No, they haven't always been in Northport. They lived on Long Island for many years. Uh, I don't know exactly how many years they've moved down to Florida. Sure. But, uh, Understand. I, I just mean for the purpose of this particular engagement, say from September 1st on, you did not go to Northport uh, to engage with them. You, you really had to do this from afar. That's correct. Uh, everything uh, has been, you know, by telephone, text message, or um, how should we say, uh, FaceTime. Or, or, or sort of these, these group Zooms? Did you have like the family, you know, group uh, FaceTime or the group Zoom like this? She's baiting him there. We didn't do something like that. Conference calls? We've had a couple of conference calls, yes. And when you had the conference calls, I mean, I'm just thinking of myself as a mother. Um, and if my son were, you know, engaging with our attorney, it would be difficult. And I was curious about how Mrs. Laundrie's reactions were, how she was digesting. And again, you don't have to tell me what you were discussing. I understand that's privilege. But just the, the reaction, the nature, and the, the, the sort of uh, taking all of the information in in real time, how did she manage that? You know, Ashley, I, I don't want to give you a, a um, an interview where I can't answer any of your questions, but, you know, it seems like most of the questions you're asking are, are going to border on the attorney-client confidentiality that I can't answer. Um, if you're asking me, you know, in general, what has been, you know, Roberta Laundrie's you know, demeanor and, and disposition over the last four or five weeks, I can tell you she's been very upset. Um, you know, she's, uh, again, been distraught. And in the last couple of days, she's grieving. Fully understand. And again, I'm not going to press you on, on what was said. I'm, again, trying to go around the outside as best I can to get uh, the, the, the color, um, the essence and, and the feel of what the family was going through in those early days between September 1st and September 11th when Gabby Petito was uh, uh, declared missing. And even thereafter, um, up until the 13th when Brian himself uh, left for the hike and didn't come back. I guess all I'm trying to, to, to get a feel for is that the family meeting with you um, were the, 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 can I put it this way? When you had the family meeting with them via electronics, was it a happy occasion? You know, often I tell people as an attorney, I, I often don't get to deal with them on happy occasions. So, you know, you're using a term happy that I would never use. What I can tell you is every conversation has been serious. Every conversation uh, that, you know, that I've had, um, as any attorney would have with their client, you know, doesn't necessarily border on happy. Um, and I don't mean to beat you up on the use of that word, um, but what I can tell you is I'm not at liberty to discuss anything uh, prior to September 11th. You know, you can ask me many different ways, but I'm going to keep giving you the same answer. You know, all of that is going to be right. attorney-client privilege. Anything after without September divulging, 11th, sure, what, without divulging anything they said, were they at least all three of them? Um, you know, able to engage with you and uh, and fill you in on their perspectives of anything that you were discussing. On September 12th and September 13th, yes, absolutely. All three of them could fill you in on how things were going within the household. Your discussion as a group was, you know, was, was full and rich and you could get a feel for what was happening in that household through, through your conversation with the three of them. I had private conversations with 
the Brian, I had private conversations with Chris, and I had uh, private conversations with Chris and Roberta separately. Um, I can tell you that, uh, you know, yeah, I had an understanding of, uh, you know, how the house was functioning at that point in time. She's good, man. She, uh, she got, uh, if I played more of that, you would see, she really got him pissed off. She was like a pit bull. She didn't stop. And I guess he probably should have stopped her just by saying, I'm not talking about any of that, yeah, you know, yeah, but he kept her off. But yeah, she was kept- wrong about that. She goes on to say that, and and it is true. Like I said, if you have a conversation with a client, in order for the attorney-client privilege to be maintained, that has to be in secret. It can't be. There can't be non-privileged people inside that conversation. So that's what she was getting at, saying that because the parents may have been part of the same communication. That's why I said she's baiting him. She's trying to establish that there were non-privileged people a part of this communication. If that's the fact, then they could be subpoenaed to come to court. That's no longer an attorney-client privileged statement. But what she's failed to perceive is that a lawyer can represent multiple parties. And in a dual representation defense, it's an agreement, and it's usually in the retainer. I mean, I don't know because he knows them so long. Maybe it's already established. But as long as there's no conflict, a Gomberg issue, or they waive it, or when you speak to one of the, the clients and speak to the other, they're all bound by the attorney-client privilege. Like, for example, the parents cannot now go forward and talk about what was said during that conversation. We, we use it like a joint defense agreement. If I have multiple defendants in a case that are represented by other attorneys, we can have a joint defense agreement so that we can all meet together and discuss it. And that binds everyone in that, in that meeting from disclosing anything that was said there. It doesn't matter which defendant. So what she failed to perceive is he represents both parties, the parents and Brian. And who knows what the parents reveal to them? Maybe their communications with Brian. Maybe they had some jeopardy, as we see now, that they had knowledge of what happened. So he's allowed to represent both. And as long as they have that dual representation agreement, nobody, it is a privileged communication, even though they are the parents. And ordinarily, you can't have the parents, the girlfriend, the spouse there because they're not part of the privilege. Right, right. I hope I explained that. I don't know. Yeah, no, you did. Here. Folks, if you need a good attorney, <laughs> Joe Murray's your man. You know, Joe Murray is a retired NYPD police officer. And he's an outstanding defense attorney, as witnessed as he comes on these shows. He's very much in demand in the podcast world, both with cops and with uh, people on the other side of the fence. If you want to get a hold of Joe, his cell phone number is 718-514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. His website is jmurray-law.com. We highly recommend Joe. Joe, I know that you got to get out of here on the hour. So I don't know. Uh, I know you wanted to get into the the um, the uh, civil case, and I mean, I we don't have enough time to really dig deep into that. But I think we know what your opinion is: is that it's probably going to be thrown out early on in this case because there's there's no grounds for it. Uh, right. You want to elaborate? You alluded on that? to that, Bill. You you pointed it out. There's no affirmative duty for them to report to the the. Uh, Gabby Petito's parents, what they knew about Gabby. They didn't have to report anything. And even their lawyer very ethically acknowledged that. The the creative way that he's proceeding with this through this course of conduct, I still think is going to fall short because there's nothing wrong with, especially knowing now that what happened and that Brian probably revealed to them what happened and that he was despondent and they were concerned for him. They all went on vacation to the park where he felt comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Joe, uh, Ashley Oaks asks, what about wrongful death lawsuit then? Against Brian, not yeah. the parents. Right, right, against his estate. That could yeah, happen, right? absolutely. But but what does this 23-year-old have in his estate that they could ever? I think recover? he has like $20,000 or something. Uh, then I, I believe there is a second action. It's actually against Brian's estate. However, during that oral argument, they called the second case, and nobody's representing Brian in that, and I think the plaintiff is going to move for a default. So I think that case is just going to end with a default, and they'll allege their damages, whatever they, they were. They'll end up with a judgment and take whatever whatever's left. you know. But if, if he had $20,000 in an account, they could have spent that on his burial. Right. I mean, I, I don't see that there's any – I really find this very heartless that they brought this action. These are the, the parents who I, were – Joe, like, I, I think they're trying to get to the truth, and this was one of the ways that they – By torturing the, torturing yeah. the parents? The yeah, parents but, you know, something – I think if you, you were a parent and the, and the laundries were um, – did what they did to the potatoes – by not telling them what happened, I think you would have a, uh, you know, you'd have some grounds to want to so get let, back let's at them. Call it what it is. This is just vengeance. Could they be wanna hurt. They want to hurt the laundries. To me, that's that really changes my opinion about them. It really changes my opinion. They took care of their daughter like it was their own daughter. They loved her, and she loved them. And now, because their son, for whatever reason, whether you believe what he wrote in there or not, their son killed him, her. Their son you know, killed Joe, her. Joe, Angie's, Angie's sending me a message. Thank you for the 999 Super Chat. She said, police off the cuff, Elvis and popcorn awaits Joe and I. So <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to keep you here too long because I know you, you won't be able to get there. Folks, we'll probably um, revisit this case as it moves forward. There's probably a good chance, like Joe has said, that uh, they could throw the civil case out. I think everyone likes the transparency that we were able to receive his um, confession and the fact that he admitted he admitted he killed her and also admitted he was going to commit suicide. That was the laundries. That, the laundries released that. Yes. No, I, I realized that. They released that. that. I realized but that. I just feel so bad for this family. They lost their son. And they have so much guilt because they probably suspected the way he's talking to them and, you know, what he was doing. You know how people who are, who are suicidal, they start giving their property away. They start saying goodbyes. They probably feel so guilty that they did not do enough to help their son and protect him from killing himself. Joe, I just want to read this. Someone in the chat that actually loves you. Finally, someone with some sense. I like this attorney a lot. So you you don't have to feel it. You know, and I look, I know that when you're a defense attorney, everyone looks at you and they don't like you because you're doing the tough work. You're doing the work. Well, on the this other is not me as a defense attorney. This is me as a father of a young daughter. This is me, you know, feeling the pain of these parents who did. I imagine everything they could to protect their son and the, uh, Gabby Petito. They loved her. They shared their house. They opened up their home to her. And, and I, I, I really feel that this is so heartless that feeling that guilt already that they, they could have done more to protect their son from killing himself. That's going to last forever. And now they got this ridiculous lawsuit on top of it to deal with. I think it's horrible. This is something that I would expect from a guy like John Walsh, that piece of garbage that he is. Oh, no. Not oh, I'm going to have all kinds of hate mail uh, with that. <laughs> folks, well, I have my own axe to grind with him. But I, I have right. you know, folks, next call for him to kill himself, which is yeah. ridiculous. They folks, hate I, just, I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I don't want Joe to be late for his Elvis show. And I know that if you give Joe another sentence, he'll be here for another 10 minutes. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm going to let him go. He's at 59.50. He's got 10 seconds. Folks, be safe out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to this case. God bless. Have a great night.
Take care, everybody. One episode, just ain't enough.